You're listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. Good evening, everyone. I want to start tonight by asking you to do something kind of challenging, mentally challenging at least, is that's to identify as much as you can with Job. As we get to the end of Job, uh, spoiler, like next week, when we read next week, God is going to show up and show Job a lot of things. And as we get into that and get ready for that, let's take a minute or this, this time we have together to identify with Job and not, not emotionally disconnect from him. I mean, it's much easier to come to church and just kind of sit back and, you know, I, I came to church even on Wednesday, so check the box, you know, good for me. It's harder to emotionally engage in what's going on here, especially after a long day at work and and all the stuff going on. But let's emotionally engage with Job tonight as much as we can. Because God gave us this book. This is a gift from Him to teach us about suffering, to teach us how to suffer in a godly way. Because He promises us in this world that we'll suffer. That's, That's a promise. We don't like claiming that one, but that's a promise from God that will suffer in this world. So he wants us to learn how to do it because he's a loving father and he's giving us instructions on how to suffer better. And if we don't emotionally engage in the suffering, we won't heal. That's part of it. Now Job is suffering and he's been talking about it through the whole book and as we're getting to the end, it will be in Job 36 and 37, Job is suffering because he's lost everything that he's worked for. Everything he's worked for in his life, he's lost. Now connect with him. How about you? How have you suffered like that? How have you suffered because it seemed like your life was pointless? Like why try so hard? It gets taken away. Why work so hard? There's no progress. We've all suffered in that way. Maybe not like Job has, but we all have. Job is suffering as well because his kids have died. How about you? How have you suffered because of death? Because death is in this world and we've been affected by it and we've been hurt by it. Job is suffering because his health is gone. He lost all of of his health. He's covered in boils and people, he's a reproach to people. How have you suffered because of your health or the health of a loved one? Job is suffering because his wife has told him to give up. She said, you might as well just curse God and die for what he's done to you. How have you suffered because of marital difficulties and problems in a marriage? Job is suffering because his friends won't help him. They refuse to help. And instead of coming to him and comforting him, they point their finger at him. How have you been hurt by your friends or your supposed loved ones who have betrayed you? And how have you hurt them? We've all suffered like that. And ultimately, Job is suffering because he feels like God has betrayed him. 
that Job is a godly man. The beginning of the book tells us that. He's doing his best to do what is right and worship God and honor God. And he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know that Satan has accused him to God. He doesn't know that God has given Satan permission to do this. All he knows is that, what's the point? Why? What profit is it to a man if we worship God? That's what he asks. And he's felt betrayed by God. What about you? How have you felt like God has hurt you? God has given you something that you don't deserve. When we've all suffered in these ways, and again, it's easier to start, you know, with a cute little story and kind of get, get you engaged. But, but this book wasn't really written for cute stories. It's written to help us suffer. So think about it. Think about this suffering. And what do we do? Or what do we do when we're suffering? A lot of us don't say anything because it hurts. We're too proud to ask for help. And really, honestly, people aren't all that helpful. I mean, in the end, a lot of times they're not helpful. They're like Job's friends. They come to try to help and they point the finger at him and and give him religious platitudes. Oh, God will make it better. Just figure out what's wrong with you and God will make it better. Just trust me. God has a plan for you. Just trust me. People just don't help a lot of times. So really all we have there in that suffering that we all go through, which God promises us, all we have is, you know, people, they might help, they might be helpful, but ultimately what we have is trust God. They cling to Him, seek Him. But there's a problem in that, right? The problem is, well, if, if God has either done this to us or has allowed it to happen to us, which is one of the points of this book, is why, why trust Him when we're suffering? If it's his fault, so to speak. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's the words we use. Why? And see, let's, we, I've, I've been saying through this, we need to wrestle with that idea. Wrestle with the real God who either causes suffering or allows it to happen, not with a fake God who's powerless to control it. And we just say, oh, you know, whatever. God doesn't... That's not... Okay, the real God, this is what the Bible teaches, is he allows it or he causes it to happen. And let's wrestle with the real God. But that makes it hard. Right, that's where the really the hard question is why trust God during our suffering? And as we read tonight in Job, at the end of Elihu's speech, chapters thirty six and thirty seven, he's trying to show that to Job. Okay, before God shows up, and they don't know God's gonna show up, they don't know what God is doing here. Elihu is trying to show Job why he can trust God in his suffering. And what it comes down to is always this. Wait, we shouldn't trust God because, you know, He'll give us seven steps to overcoming suffering. He'll give us five principles for a godly marriage. You know, He'll give us ten business strategies to succeed in your, but no, that's not, that's not why. We trust God because of who He is. That's what Elihu tells Job. That's what God Himself tells Job when He shows up. It's who God is. So we need to know who God is. So we trust God in our suffering because of who He is. And Elihu brings up three points here, and that's what we'll talk about. That God is good, that God is powerful, and that God is wise. So let's start with God is good. In chapter 36. So, and just like anything to do with God, I mean the real God, it doesn't, it's not what we would think. Right? God is good not because He's going to bless us. You know, if we give him 10%, he'll give us 50%. It's not, that's not why God is good. Hey, that might happen. Yeah, but what God really has to say about himself is not what we would say. Let's look what Elihu says about why God is good. 
Okay, so first, verse 1 through 4, it says, Elihu also proceeded and said, Bear with me a little, and I will show you that there are yet words to speak on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe righteousness to my Maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. All right, so he states his purpose here of, of this speech. It's that he's speaking on God's behalf, because no one has really done that yet. Job has spoken on his own behalf, saying why he is righteous, why he doesn't deserve it. The friends have pointed the finger at Job, but Elihu is saying, I'm going to speak on God's behalf, because no one's really done that yet. No one's looked to God in this and, and tried to see what's going on. And then he says, here's the key, verse 3, I will ascribe righteousness to my maker. What he means is, I'm going to prove to you that God is good. I'm going to ascribe righteousness to my maker. I will prove to you that God is righteous, that God is good. And the first thing he says, again, not what we would expect, because God is beyond our understanding. He says God is good because he tells us we're sinners. That's his first point. Because he tells us we're sinners. Verses 5 through 10. Behold, God is mighty, but despises no one. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not preserve the life of the wicked, but gives justice to the oppressed. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but they are on the throne with kings, for he has seated them forever, and they are exalted. And if they are bound in fetters, held in the cords of affliction, then he tells them their work and their transgressions, that they have acted defiantly. He also opens their ear to instruction and commands that they turn from iniquity. See, Elihu has said, Job, I'm going to prove to you God is good. I will ascribe righteousness to my maker. And here's a starting point, which might seem strange. His is starting point is saying God is good because he will let you know that you're a sinner. He will tell you that you are a sinner. But he says he doesn't show partiality. He, he looks on the righteous and on the kings on the throne. He doesn't care who it is. And he says, verse 8, if they are bound in fetters, that's like chains, held in the cords of affliction, then he tells them their work and their transgressions that they have acted defiantly. Now I want to make a distinction here if you've been you know, paying attention or if you've read the book of Job. And Job's others, other friends, the three other friends from earlier in the book, they were saying something similar, but not exactly the same, and they were wrong. See, what his friends were saying was that they said, for sure, Job, you are suffering. It's because you have done a secret sin there's something wrong with you that God is trying to show you, and you need to figure out what that is, and you repent, and then God is going to bless you big time. But that's what the friends were saying, and they were wrong. God says about these friends, you were wrong. You did not speak of me what is right. But what Elihu is saying is different than that, although it's similar. He's not saying that you're suffering because of a secret sin. He's saying you are suffering because of sin. Not because of your sin or a secret sin, but because of sin, Period whether that's your sin, whether that's someone else's sin, whether that's just a sin that's infected the world, you are suffering because of sin. And he'll tell you. That's what he says. He says, he tells them their work and their transgressions, that they have acted defiantly. He opens their ear to instruction and commands that they turn from iniquity. So again, as we're suffering, it's not, we can't come to the conclusion in other people's lives for sure, and probably not even in our own, that God has done this to me to punish me. The Bible is very clear that that's not how it works. But what is true is your suffering is a consequence of sin, not of God punish you for it. There's a difference. 
and in suffering, when you are bound in the cords of affliction, as it says, God will tell you your work and your transgression, how you've acted defiantly. Right? That's, and he's saying that's a way that God is good. Because here's why. It says in Galatians, the purpose of the law, the purpose of knowing what is sinful and what is not, what is right and what is wrong. The purpose of that, in Galatians it says that the law is a tutor to bring us to Christ. The law, what God says is right and what God says is wrong, is not there for us to justify ourselves and say we're great people. The law is also not there for us to say I, I'm a terrible, wicked person. Well, it is in a sense, but that's not the end of it. It's a tutor to bring us to Christ. See, and that's a way that God is good. And that's the... Well, let's go a little bit further than Romans 1, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. And for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, so that they are without excuse. Right? God is clearly speaking through His creation that there is a Creator. I mean, that's an obvious point, which a lot of people miss, which I missed before I was a Christian. I thought it's just all coincidence, you know, Big Bang, whatever. But then it goes on in Romans 2, says this, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, these, although not having a law, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. See what this is saying? See, God is good because He will tell you that you are a sinner. Whether it's through the Bible, through the the Word, the law, the Ten Commandments, and God's other laws, or even just your own conscience. You know. We all know. We know we've been hurt by sin. And we know we've done sin. And that is, according to Elihu, something that makes God good. See, now if you don't know Jesus... Forget God's law. Yeah, that, doesn't, that doesn't even matter to you. Think about your own law. right? We have our own law that we've set up for ourselves. Here's a standard I should live by. And we don't meet it. We don't even meet our own standards. And that conscience, that guilt we feel because we don't even live up to our own standards, is God. When you are bound in fetters in the cords of affliction, He is telling you your transgressions. He tells everyone. Everyone knows. What it says in Romans is you have to suppress that truth in order not to feel the guilt from that. And the world is very good at helping you with that. If you don't want to feel the guilt, there's all sorts of ways you can numb and tune yourself out, whether through drugs, alcohol, pornography, TV, social media, internet, any number of ways we can numb ourselves to our guilt. And that's what we do. Because we know we're guilty. That's the conscience. That's God loving us enough to tell us. See, that's where he starts here. I'm going to ascribe righteousness to my maker. First point is God is telling you. You've done transgressions. You've acted in iniquity. You are a sinner. But it doesn't stop there. He goes on. He says God is good because he tells you that. He tells everyone that. I don't care what you think about God. You know that's true. You know you're guilty. And he's good because he gives you a chance to respond, which he doesn't need to give you. So verse 11. If they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. But if they do not obey, they shall perish by the sword and they shall die without knowledge. But the hypocrites in heart store up wrath. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth 
and their life ends among the perverted persons. He delivers the poor in their affliction and opens their ears in oppression. See, he tells you you're guilty. And then he gives you a chance to respond. If they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity. And not financial or material prosperity, but spiritually. We'll spend our days in prosperity and prospering and having spiritual life. If we obey, right? If we serve him, when he's telling us this, here's the key, verse 13. Like this is the key verse in this. The hypocrites in heart store up wrath. They do not cry for help when he binds them, right? That's the suffering that when he binds us, that's the suffering that he either caused or allowed to happen, right? And the hypocrites in heart do not cry for help when he does that. They store up wrath. And that's a good word for that person. It's not just Christians who are hypocrites, you know, uh, Everyone. Everyone is a hypocrite. And here's, here's why. Because you know you're a sinner. You know you've contributed to the evil in the world. You know you've hurt people. Yet you don't care enough about it to do anything. Yeah, you might try to do good things to make it up. That doesn't erase what you've done. So the hypocrite in heart stores up wrath. They're bound in fetters in the cords of affliction. God is telling them. God is telling you. And the hypocrite in heart will store up wrath. See, it's the, the choice or the chance to respond. Are you going to obey? Or are you going to be a hypocrite and store up wrath? And then he's good because he tells you. He gives you a chance to respond, which he does not need to. He doesn't need to do any of this. And then he gives you a choice. He lets you choose. Verse 16. Indeed, he would have brought you out of dire distress into a broad place where there is no restraint, And what is said on your table will be full of richness. But you are filled with the judgment due the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold of you. Because there is wrath, beware lest he take you away with one blow. For a large ransom will not help you avoid it. Will your riches or all the mighty forces keep you from distress? Do not desire the night when people are cut off in their place. Take heed. Do not turn to iniquity. For you have chosen this rather than affliction. Now remember, Elihu is talking to Job. It's not probably a super nice thing to say to Job, but Job needs to hear it. And God echoes what Elihu says. So Elihu is not in the wrong by speaking to him like this. Okay, what he's saying in verse 16 and 17 is that he has the choice to respond to God telling him this, that he would have brought you out of dire distress, but you're filled with the judgment due to the wicked. See, we have that choice what to do with it. The hard part here, okay, he says, will your riches or the mighty forces keep you from distress? We know that's not true. But verse 21, this is the hard thing Elihu is telling Job and what we need to look at in ourselves. He says, take heed, do not turn to iniquity, for you have chosen this rather than affliction. See, in verse 10, Elihu said, God commands that they turn from iniquity. What Elihu is saying to Job is that Job has chosen iniquity rather than his affliction. What he means, see, if God has bound him in fetters and the cords of affliction to tell him, hey, there's still, you're not perfect, Job. There's still some stuff in you. He's not doing it to, you know, teach him a lesson or to, to punish him for something, but there's things for him to learn here. And he's asking him, are you going to turn to your iniquity? Or are you going to turn to your affliction? That is probably the hardest thing in our suffering. 
It's not that God is punishing. I want to be very clear about that, but it's what is God telling him? What is God telling you? And when we're suffering, we have that choice. Are we going to turn to our iniquity and look and kind of defend that? Now, this is, this is how I want to be. God isn't, I haven't done anything wrong. And again, not that it's caused because of that, but I'm not going to learn anything from this. That's turning to iniquity, which is what Job has chosen. Job chose to do that rather than turn to his affliction and face the affliction and face the suffering. What is God trying to tell me? What can I learn? How is he still good in this? You're going to face iniquity or leaning into the purpose of your suffering. See, it's, it's hard. And that's how we know it's from God. He's, he's saying this is how God is good. God will tell you that you're a sinner. God will give you a chance to respond. And he'll give you a choice. Are you going to do it? Are you going to turn to your affliction? Or are you going to turn to your iniquity? So God is good. Right? That's the point. And, and we know Jesus, that exemplifies this. Jesus on the cross, that Jesus who suffered more than you have, more than Job has, he was without sin, without iniquity. He faced the affliction. He went on through life. He was... He, suffered, was beaten, whipped, spit on, mocked, and he died on the cross to give you a chance to respond. You don't have to keep living in your suffering eternally. That's what that's what he did. Because he's good. See, God lets you know you're a sinner. And he gives you a chance to respond to Jesus. Are you going to face your iniquity? Are you going to face your affliction? And when you see your affliction and the extent of it, then are you going to face Jesus and put your faith in Him so that you'll be forgiven of that iniquity? He gives you a choice. Eternal life or being a hypocrite and storing up wrath to die with the perverted person, like it says in verse 14. See, if you've chosen Jesus, your suffering will end. Maybe not in this lifetime, but it will end. That's a promise. So he's telling Job, and you're suffering. See, it's why should we trust God? Well, God's good. And if you don't believe that, then everything's going to fall apart. That's why sin entered the world in the first place. It was when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, they doubted that God was good. He goes on then. God's good and also we can trust God because he's powerful. Because God is powerful beyond our understanding. So verse just 22 through 25 here. He says, Behold, God is exalted by his power. Who teaches like him? Who has assigned him his way? Or who has said, you have done wrong? Remember to magnify his work of which men have sung. Everyone has seen it. Man looks on it from afar. So he tells them that God is powerful. God's powerful because he's, he's eternal. He's exalted by his power. God was not created. He is eternal. He is the creator. God's powerful because he's holy. Who teaches like him? Who teaches like God? Who's assigned him his way? Or who said you have done wrong? No one put God in charge. He is in charge because he is powerful. He's omnipotent. And so he deserves worship. That's those last two verses. Remember to magnify his work of which men have sung. Everyone has seen it. Man looks on it from afar. Everyone's seen it, but you can suppress it if you want. You can numb yourself to it. But everyone has seen it. Seeing God is powerful. And this all comes back. All this suffering has to come back to Jesus' death and resurrection. Job lost everything, like we talked about at the beginning. He lost everything he worked for. All of his, his house is destroyed. 
His animals are dead. His servants are dead. He's lost everything. Jesus lost everything. Jesus is eternally God the Son who lived in glory and exaltation. He was worshipped eternally. And he, Philippians says he didn't cling to that. But he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. See, he lost everything. He was rich and for our sake he became poor so that we might become rich in him. See, Jesus lost everything. But his resurrection and his ascension to heaven takes away Jesus losing everything because he's more powerful than losing everything. Job lost his health. Jesus as well lost his health when he died. I mean, as he was beaten and scourged and he died, he lost his health. But his resurrection shows that Jesus is more powerful than losing health. Jesus defeated losing his health. Job lost his relationships. His friends betrayed him. His wife told him to give up. He had no one to help him. Jesus lost his relationship with his father when he was on the cross for our sins. He was separated from his father for the first time in eternity as the father was pouring out the wrath we deserve on Jesus. Jesus lost his relationship with his father on the cross, but his resurrection shows that that relationship was restored. Jesus is more powerful than lost relationships. Job lost his kids. All of his kids died. Jesus, God's only son, died on the cross, but he defeated death in his resurrection. Jesus is more powerful than death. See, that's why he's saying God is powerful. We can trust God in our suffering because God is powerful. He's more powerful than all that. He proved that. And if you've lost everything, Jesus will restore all things because he's more powerful than losing everything. It says in Acts 3, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive, and tell the times of restoration of all things. Everything you've lost, He will restore. It doesn't say in this lifetime, but He will, because He has proven He is more powerful than anything we've lost, anything that defeats us, anything that causes us suffering. Jesus is more powerful. Because if you've lost your health, Jesus will give you a body that is not subject to sickness or decay. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If you are suffering because of your relationships with other people, you've lost relationships with people who used to love you. If you're suffering in that way, Jesus restores your relationship with God, which is severed because of sin. It says in Colossians 1, For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. See, Jesus restores our broken relationship with God. If you're suffering because of death, through Jesus we defeat death. 1 Corinthians as well, 15, it says, So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. See, Elihu is proving to Job, God is good. You can trust him because he's powerful. He is, we see that in what Jesus has done, in his work, and who he is. He is more powerful. 
So what we need to do, verse 24 and 25, remember to magnify His work. That's what we just did, right? Remember to magnify His work. What Jesus has done, of which men have sung, which hopefully we just did and we're going to do in a little bit again. Everyone has seen it. Man looks on it from afar. Remember to do that because God is powerful. And thirdly, why we can trust God in our suffering is that God is wise. God is wise. He's beyond our understanding. So we're going to read a big chunk here. Elihu gives this very beautiful illustration to show how wise God is. And it's with a thunderstorm. So we're going to go from verse 26 to verse 13 to verse 37 because it's all the, the one illustration here. He says, Behold, God is great and we do not know Him. Notice there's three beholds. Verse 5, Behold, God is mighty. Verse 22, Behold, God is exalted. Verse 26, Behold, God is great. Okay, Behold, God is great and we do not know Him. Nor can the number of His years be discovered. For he draws up drops of water, which distill his rain from the mist, which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man. Indeed, can anyone understand the spreading of clouds, the thunder from his canopy? Look, he scatters his light upon it and covers the depths of the sea. For by these he judges the peoples. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with lightning and commands it to strike. His thunder declares it, the cattle also concerning the rising storm. At this also my heart trembles and leaps from its place. Hear attentively the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He sends it forth under the whole heaven. His lightning roars, or his lightning to the ends of the earth. After it a voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice. And he does not restrain them when his voice is heard. God thunders marvelously with his voice. He does great things which we cannot comprehend. For he says to the snow, fall on the earth. Likewise to the gentle rain and the heavy rain of his strength. He seals the hand of every man that all men may know his work. The beasts go into dens and remain in their lairs. From the chamber of the south comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds of the north. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen. Also with moisture, he saturates the thick clouds He scatters his bright clouds and they swirl about being turned by his guidance that they may do whatever he commands them on the face of the whole earth. He causes it to come, whether for correction or for his land or for mercy. What's his point? He's saying that God is wise, that we can't understand him. And and here he starts with talking about a thunderstorm. And how does a thunderstorm start? It's one drop, one drop of rain. And that one drop keeps building and building and building. And it gets more intense and more violent. And pretty soon it's not just a drop of rain, but it's it's a downpour. Pretty soon after that, it's not just that, but it's thunder and it's lightning. And after that, it talks about the whirlwind coming and, and the winds pick up and there's a storm and it's full on now. And it keeps getting worse and worse and worse and more intense and more scary. He says... He causes it to come, whether for correction or for his land or for mercy. And he's telling Job, hey, this is your suffering. It starts out as a just a drop, just one little thing, a drop of rain. 
And it gets worse and worse and worse. And it keeps building and piling on. And life keeps beating you up. And what started is just that little drop of rain. Now there's thunder and lightning. And the wind's picked up and it's scary. And you don't know what is going on. But as it says here, the thunderstorm is doing whatever God commands it on the face of the whole earth. God made the thunderstorm from that little drop. And now it's this huge raging thing that's out of control or it looks like. But he's in, he's commanding it. He's in control of it. Verse 13. Why? He causes it to come, whether for correction or for his land or for mercy. See, that suffering that keeps building and when is it going to end is getting worse and worse and more and more scary. What seems out of our control is really in God's control. That's what Elihu is saying. He's commanded it, whether for correction or for mercy. Yeah, what doesn't make any sense to us, what seems to be out of control, is God in complete control. And look at the beauty here and and difficulty. Elihu doesn't say something cheesy like, and then after the storm, the rainbow comes and and everything is nice. It's not. He doesn't say that. He says the storm itself is the thing to look into. Not what's after the storm. He's saying God causes the storm for correction or for mercy. And we look so much after the storm. But Elihu is saying, don't turn to your iniquity, turn to your affliction. Look at the storm. If you remember this, why we can trust God during suffering. Look at God's power and God's wisdom. Look what God can do with a drop of water. We need thunderstorms in the earth and in our life. That's the point he's making. So then he goes on, respond to this. How how are you going to respond to this? Verse 14. Listen to this, O Job. Stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know when God dispatches them? and causes the light of his cloud to shine? Do you know how the clouds are balanced, those wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? Why are your garments hot when he quiets the earth by the south wind? With him have you spread out the sky, strong as a cast metal mirror? Teach us what we should say to him, for we can prepare nothing because of the darkness. Should he be told that I wish to speak? If a man were to speak, surely he would be swallowed up. Stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. That's what he says. Like you don't know, when you think about a thunderstorm, you don't know when it's coming. Yeah, the weatherman can do all the stuff, but not, not that far in the future. Right? You don't know that, Job. All you can do is trust God in your suffering. He asked Job, why are your garments hot when he quiets the earth by the south wind? Like you don't even understand the nature of the wind and, and why your clothes get hot when the wind comes from the south. We can explain some stuff, but not deep at its essence Really get at what that, what that is. And he's asking him. He's telling him, Job, you don't understand. God is wise. Stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. He's saying, from a raindrop, God creates a storm. And the storm itself is either for correction or for mercy. It's either to tell you, to shake you up, to get you to see something, or to draw you closer to Him. And the same with Jesus. Right, Jesus, as a baby, a fetus even, an embryo, 
The drop of rain. Right? That's how it started on this earth. Is a single cell. That's how Jesus, that's how God entered the world truly was, was a single cell and embryo. And that drop of rain becomes the savior of the world. God in human flesh. See, one day every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And something that starts so small becomes big enough that everyone will worship him. See, this is all to say how small we are and how wise God is beyond our imagining. It says in 1 Corinthians, quoting from Isaiah, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Like our eyes don't see, our ears don't hear, our hearts can't even comprehend what God has prepared for us. What we have to know is what he's prepared sometimes is a thunderstorm. Is it for correction or for mercy? Will you face your iniquity or your affliction? Why should we trust God in our suffering? Look at what he can do to a raindrop. What can he do with you in your suffering? Thunderstorms aren't always bad. We need them sometimes. So we're going to end with the, the rest of the chapter here. Kind of summarize this. Let's read 21 to the end of the chapter. Even now, men cannot look at the light when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. He comes from the north as a golden splendor, with God as awesome majesty. As for the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is excellent in power, in judgment and abundant justice. He does not oppress. Therefore, men fear him. He shows no partiality to any who are wise of heart. So why do we suffer? Why can we trust God? Look, verse 21. Men cannot look at the light when it is bright in the skies. That says a lot about our suffering. We don't look at the light when it's bright out. That's what it's saying. When it's bright out, we kind of ignore the light, maybe even complain about it. It's too bright. We pay attention when there's a thunderstorm. When the light is gone for a while, that's when we look to the light. Men cannot look at the light when it's bright in the skies. Think about that. What Job says in a couple chapters, because this you know, is, is about Job and we can apply it to us. Well, what Job says, after all of his suffering and after hearing stuff like this from Elihu, which is probably hard to hear, and then what God tells him, what Job says is, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. See, when it was bright out in Job's life, it was so bright he didn't look at the light. That's what he's saying. Job admits that. So even if it's hard for us to hear that now, that's what Job says after. He didn't look at the light when it was bright out. He'd heard with his ear, but after going through this, now he sees with his eyes. Yes, Job was a godly man. He was a godly man. But even he says he didn't look to the light when it was bright out. He didn't see God until the thunderstorm. If you're not a Christian... You know you're a sinner. And that's, that's God being good and telling you, you know. Whether it's you've heard in the Bible, you have your own guilty conscience, you don't meet up to your own standards, you know you're a sinner. You know you've suffered. And so he's giving you a choice. 
face your iniquity, protect your sin, even though it's hurt you, or face your affliction, see that you're a sinner, and then turn to Jesus in faith. Turn from your sin, turn to Jesus. For those of us, those of us who are Christians, in the sad truth, is we don't often look to the light when it's bright out. We will suffer. We will suffer. But God is good. God is good. God is powerful. And God is wise. And this all goes to say, we, we trust God for who He is. That's what the point He's making. That's what God says in the next chapters, for who He is. So let's pray. Oh, Father... Help us to trust you in our suffering. God, we confess, at least I do, that in my affliction, I faced iniquity instead, rather than facing my affliction, seeing you in it and what you want me to learn. God, help me to trust that you are good. Help me to trust that you are powerful in anything that I'm suffering through. You've already defeated. And you'll bring that to completion the day when you are revealed to the world, Jesus, when you come back. And help us to trust that you are wise, that even though the storms are raging and we do not understand what is going on, help us to remember you are in control and you caused the storm to happen, whether for correction or for mercy. So help us to lean into that. Father, if there's any who are not Christians who are listening, God, I ask that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, convict them Show them that they are a sinner. Show them they have the choice now to respond in faith to your salvation. God, for those who are Christians, I thank you that you've shown us that choice. And we've put our faith in you. And help us to continue doing that, even in our suffering, because you are good, you are powerful, and you are wise. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship or call us at 800-357-4226. Don't forget to catch next week's morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship.